Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 46. Uh, this morning, technically, uh, we will cover uh, the last half of 45, all of 46 and 47. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to read the whole thing. We're not going to stand and read all of that. That would be a lot. Uh, but we are going to read a fair bit. Um, and it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word together. Uh, so if you are willing and able to do that, let me ask uh, that you stand now. Uh, Genesis chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there. I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came to into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And now down to verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him. In Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, they have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of 
the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us your spirit now. We don't want just to know these words. We don't want just to understand these words. We need and want to be changed by them. By your grace, we ask it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You know, fear is such a a normal part of our lives that we think um, that we think it belongs there. We think it just is sort of part of life. Being afraid, uh, fear of things is so common to us that we think, quite honestly, there's really nothing wrong with it. Just think about the things you're afraid of. Maybe some of you are afraid of the dark. Uh, maybe some of you are afraid of storms. My yellow lab, anytime there's thunder, goes bananas. Uh, he can't stand them. Uh, maybe you're afraid of tornadoes. Um, sometimes I wonder why I have landed in Tornado Alley. The things scare me to death. But you know, there, there's really something almost silly about the fear of those things. It's not always dark. It's not always storming. And even when there are storms, we don't always have tornadoes in those storms. So sometimes it seems like of all the things to be afraid of, I mean, snakes and spiders, tornadoes, I mean, we may have them, but we don't have them all the time. We don't have them. There's not one out there now. There's not even rain out there right now. Sometimes it seems silly to be afraid of those. And so much so that when we're asked what we're afraid of, we tend to give those answers. But deep down inside, there is something else, I think, that causes greater fear and anguish in our hearts and lives. And it's fear of the future, fear of uncertainty, fear of the unknown. Because those things never go away. The storm may pass, the tornado may go, the snake may slither off, you might turn on a light and the darkness is past. You still have your future. You still have the unknown uncertainty of the road set out before you. Jacob is in just that situation right here in this passage. Jacob is walking that path And these chapters give us a glimpse of why not only he shouldn't be afraid, but quite honestly, why you and I should not be afraid of that unknown future. Jacob is leaving home. He's headed towards Egypt, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 46. When he got to Beersheba, he stopped and there in Beersheba, he offered sacrifices. Beersheba, think of it like... um, Maybe McAllen, Texas. If you, if you go south of McAllen, Texas, you're in Mexico. You're no longer in the United States. You, you go south of McAllen, you've left 
the country or that, that, that buoy looking thing down there on Key West that says this is the southernmost point of the United States. You go south of that and you're in the water. And you've left the United States. You go south of Beersheba, you're no longer in Canaan, you're no longer in the promised land, you're in the desert. You're in some foreign country. You've left the soil of the promised land. And so there in Beersheba, as Jacob prepares to leave the the land of Canaan, the land promised to him, to his father, to his grandfather, he stops and offers a, a thank offering to God. In fact, you'll, you'll read the Old Testament. And as you do, you'll run across the phrase from Dan to Beersheba. That's from Canada to Mexico, from north to south, from the northernmost sort of major city to the southernmost city in Israel, in Canaan, in the promised land. So Jacob stops to offer sacrifices to God. He's leaving this promised land. He's leaving the land he's known. He's leaving the land he's been promised for decades now. His father was promised. His grandfather was promised. And he stops first to offer this sacrifice. He's leaving because of the famine that's so severe in Egypt, in Canaan, in surrounding areas. And His son, who was dead, is now discovered alive in Egypt in a place of prominence as sort of the vice pharaoh of Egypt, which grants him the the right, the power, the authority. He's in a, a place where he can care for his family for years to come to provide for them during this famine. You know, it's kind of funny, really, because... For the last 25 years or so of Jacob's life, for the last, some of you think, well, it seems like 25 years of Genesis. It hasn't actually been that long. Um, For the last 13 chapters or so, Jacob can't speak without talking about his death. Every time he says anything at all from chapter 35 to now, Every single, it, like literally all week, I've had the words of the Dread Pirate Roberts in the back of my head. Um, the Princess Bride. Uh, Wesley, as he recounts sort of his history on uh, the pirate ship with the Dread Pirate Roberts, he says, you know, I was on board and I was working and laboring or whatever. And every single night, the Dread Pirate Roberts would say to me, good work today, Wesley. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Every night. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to die. That's, that's Jacob. Or Fred Sanford, this is the big one, Elizabeth. Like, every time you turn around, this is the big one, Elizabeth. That's the way Jacob talks. Every time he speaks from chapter 35 to now, he talks about dying. It's been 25 years. 25 years he's been convinced that his death, it's any minute now, it's coming, I'm, I'm gone, probably tomorrow. And now he's packing up everything he owns to make a journey to Egypt, to move to a new place. Who likes to move at the age, I'm 40-something. I don't want to move. Imagine being 130. Change. A move like that to a completely foreign country. Everything stacked against Jacob. 
But He won't leave without first offering a thank offering to His God. And there in that moment, as He's offering sacrifices, God appears to Him. Now, did you notice? We just sang this, by the way. Did you notice what the passage said? Moses, the part Moses writes in chapter 46, he uses the name Israel for Jacob. God, who changed His name to Israel a number of chapters ago, calls Him Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, God said to him. You need need to know this. The God of the universe knows you personally and intimately. The fact that He calls Jacob by His personal given name, He's communicating to Jacob yet once more, I'm not just some foreign distant God that has no interaction with you at all. I'm a personal God that knows you and loves you and cares for you. He knows Him intimately and personally. And notice the promises that He makes to Jacob in verses 3 and 4. The whole reason God appears to Jacob, it seems, is to convince Jacob that he has no reason to be afraid. He said, you know, here I am, verse 3. Then He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. The whole reason God appears to Jacob in this moment is to alleviate his fears. You're moving? Something old people. And I put old in quotes because old would be anything over in this instance. Nobody likes to move. Anything over 35. Nobody likes to move. You're moving, you're moving to a foreign land with foreign gods, foreign religion, all of that sort of stuff. Keep in mind, um, when his father or his grandfather went to Egypt, things didn't go so well. They were both run out of town, quite honestly. Abraham was kicked out of Egypt for lying to Pharaoh. There's not a good history here. There's not a good relationship here. Jacob knows, I'm going to the place that Abraham... These people have a bad taste in their mouth for us. Because of what my father and grandfather have done here. He's leaving the comfortable and the known for the uncertainty of Egypt. Why shouldn't Jacob be afraid? God gives him a couple of reasons, actually. First, uh, he's told, verse 3, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, because there I will make you into a great nation. Pay attention to the verbs. Their future tense. Why aren't you angry? You know it's been at least, and I, I, I literally, I kind of took about four minutes the other day to do four minutes worth of math. It's been at least 200 years. Quickly, not, not really thinking hard, not really kind of... But it's been at least 200 years since God first made that promise to Abraham. Follow me. I'll take you to a land. And when you get to where you're supposed to be, the first 
few verses of Genesis 12. When you get to where you're supposed to be, I'll stop you and that's the place and I'm going to make you into a great nation and you'll be a blessing to the people around you and, and those that bless you will bless you and those that curse you, will I will curse. It's been at least 200 years since that first promise was made to Abraham. God's now telling Jacob, I right, said, so look, here's the deal. You're going to go to Egypt and that's where I'm going to make you a great nation. 200 years and you still haven't done that? I mean, you made this promise 200 years ago and you're still using future tense verbs? Isn't this how you and I think? Why is this taking so long? I can get grits in a minute and a half. There's minute rice. There's instant everything. Instant pudding. I can go through the drive through And if I have to wait more than eight seconds, I fuss and complain and fill out a comment card and, and tell people. 200 years and God's still using future tense verbs. There in Egypt, I'm going to make you a great nation. And we want to go, seriously, what are you waiting on? Why haven't you done this yet? I mean, 200 years is plenty long, God. You created everything in six days. Surely you can make us a great nation in, I don't know, six years? Still 200 years later, we're waiting. But look at verses 8 through 27. These are the verses we skipped. I'd like to say I did it for your sake. That would probably not be true. I didn't want to have to attempt to pronounce all of those names. And so it was probably as much for mine as it was for yours. But what we discover is that there are 70. Verse 27, the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. You know what 70 is? It's a lot more than two. Which is how many there were when the promise was first given 200 years ago. Okay, 70 is not a... Look, I know plenty of people for whom 70 is half of a family reunion. I know plenty of people for whom 70 would be two family reunions. I don't know any nation, certainly not one that we would call great... That you would say 70 inhabitants? That's, that's, yeah, that's a great nation. That's, we'll call that a great nation. That sounds good to me. I don't, I don't see us doing that. We tend to look at the what it's not. 70 is not a great nation. But you know what it is? It's evidence that God has been at work these 200 years. Slowly but surely accomplishing the very promise He gave to Abraham. No, it's not a great nation yet. But it's also not two. It's a whole lot more than Abraham and Sarah. That's how many there were in Genesis 12 when the promise was first given. In other words, they're going to Egypt to be made a great nation and you and I have evidence of that God is at work accomplishing that purpose, that plan, fulfilling that very promise. Just because God doesn't do things the way we want Him to, when we want Him to, doesn't mean He's not doing them. Do, do you know 2 Peter 3? In 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, 
with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. God's at work. Growing this great nation. No, they're not great yet. No, it hasn't happened in this 200 year span. You and I, because we, we have the rest of the story, right? We know that over the next 400 years, they're going to become a million or more. We're, it's, it's beginning to be fulfilled and God's taking them to Egypt in order to accomplish that promise. You and I, by the way, have another problem with that, with this sentence in verse 3. Here's the struggle you and I have with this. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt because there I'm going to make you a great nation. Here's the problem you and I have. It's Egypt. It's not Canaan. Wait, 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 hold on. You promised them the land of Canaan. And actually, Jacob actually lives there. You know they actually own land in Canaan? It's a small family burial plot. But they own land in Canaan. It's not big enough for a house. that They don't own the land they live on. They own the land their ancestors are buried in. And that's about all they have. In all of the promised land. And God's going to take them out of the promised land. And take them down to Egypt. And let them grow into a great nation there. So that He can deliver them from Egypt and bring them back to the promised land? See, you and I want to go, whoa, 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 time out. Why would you send them to the difficult place to grow? Why wouldn't you leave them in the promised land and let them grow there? If this is the land you're going to give them, why not just go ahead and, you know, give it to them? Let's let them have it now. Run out the Amalekites. Run out the, the other people that live there. And, and just let them have it. And let them grow into a great nation. You know, in their nation. In the place that's going to be theirs anyway. You and I far too often expect that the life of the believer should be easy. Not difficult. It's our assumption that as Christians, God owes us at least this. You know, not to be in the places where people hate shepherds. Not to be in places that, that people hate us. But instead, why not just rope off a big piece of dirt and say, look, all Christians, y'all go live there. And then you won't have to argue and fuss and you won't have... The ridicule of the outsiders. You won't have people making fun of you. That's what we expect. And yet God in His wisdom sends His people into a form of exile almost. It's not punishment for what they've done or haven't done. It's, it's not retributive in any way, shape, or form. He's sending them there so that they might grow. And we read the last verse of verse of chapter 46. 
Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Naturally then, Joseph told his brothers, here's what you're going to do. When, when Pharaoh calls you and asks you what your profession is, don't say farmer, because that could also have been true and could have been tempting to say. Don't, and, and this would be the family pattern, don't lie, don't make something up. Don't try to impress the wealthiest, most powerful person in all the world with some made-up occupation so that he'll therefore like you. No, no. Tell him your shepherds. It's, it reminds me, my brother's name is Robert. And he hates every, every variation of Robert. His name is Robert. It's not any of the other things you might come up with and call him. It's not Rob, Robbie, Bob, Bobby, Bert. Uh, you fix your, pick your, pick your, you know, nickname for Rob. It's none of those. It's Robert. That's what he likes. That's what he. Naturally, therefore, I told my kids we're going to call him Bobby. <laughs> Pharaoh hates shepherds. Guys, here's what you're going to do. When you go in there, tell him you're shepherds. Tell him that this is what you are. Now, he's not bending the truth. They are shepherds. They have been forever. We've seen evidence of this in the past. He's not bending the truth. He's not telling them to lie. He's not making up some story. He wants them to be brutally honest. But he's also being politically savvy. God is taking Jacob and his family out of the land that he knows, out of the land that he loves, out of the land that's been promised to him, to his father, to his grandfather, sending, to, sending him to a people that hate his profession. You know, there are plenty of times when God works in ways in and through His people in ways that really doesn't make sense to us. Instruments, means, things He sets out to accomplish that left to the natural mind might not make a whole lot of sense. I mean, there's a famine in the land. What if, humor me for a second, couldn't God have just caused, I don't know, Plants to grow in Canaan and, and stop the famine in Canaan and have only the famine in Egypt. I mean, that, that seems reasonable to you and me, right? That's probably what we would expect God to do. Well, if, if He just would cause the plants to grow there, then they don't have to leave and we don't have this issue. We don't have this problem. Could God sanctify us in an instant? Could He make us holy in this life, could He not rid you and me as believers of the old man, the sinful nature? Couldn't He just eradicate that completely in the one split second all of a sudden? Couldn't He sanctify us as, as definitively and quickly and instantaneously as He justifies us, as He declares us righteous in His sight? I suppose He could. For that matter, you and I are just like Jacob. 
sojourners. That, that's the language Jacob uses to describe his whole life. I've, I'm a sojourner. I've been here 130 years, but quite honestly, I know this is not my home. You and I are not in our home. Yes, we live here. Yes, we own land here. This isn't your home. This isn't where you'll be in this condition, in this place, like this, for all eternity. Couldn't he just eradicate sin in, a, in a, just a moment, in an instant? Couldn't he have created the world in one day and not six? For that matter, even Jesus left the comforts of eternity in heaven to take on the discomfort of human flesh. The pain and shame and agony of, of bearing the weight and pain of the guilt of sin for you and me. Enduring the cross of death itself, even burial for three days, all to accomplish the plans and purposes of God. God frequently works through, even primarily through the lack of ease, the absence of ease and comfort. In fact, you could actually make the case that the most useful Christians have been forged in the crucible of trial and testing. The trials and struggles that we face equip us to serve and to love others. God told Jacob not to fear going down to Egypt because there in Egypt, God would accomplish his purposes. God would make Israel into a great nation. And, and you and I, again, we've, we've read the rest of the Old Testament. We know how the story goes. You and I know what, what Moses knew, but Jacob didn't yet. That over the next 400 years, hundreds of thousands of Israelites raised up to go back and to take the promised land. There's a second reason Jacob shouldn't fear. There's a second reason not to fear. We see it in verse 4 of chapter 46. There I'll make you into a great nation. Verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. You know this, Egypt is a um, not a Christian nation. Uh, they had their own gods, plural, including Pharaoh, who was sort of a minor god, sort of a junior god of, of sorts. And they had gods for, for everything. Many nations in those days believed that their gods were bound by national borders just like people are. So that when you cross a national border, you leave behind the gods of that nation. Enter Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created His borders. The borders over which He will rule. Oh yeah, that's right. The heavens and the earth. Everything that exists, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob rules over that. If it exists, if it's been created, God made it and therefore is king and ruler over it. In other words... Jacob, when you leave this city of Beersheba and you turn your back on Canaan, I'm going with you. 
I will, you're not leaving me. This border may change, you know, okay, we're leaving Canaan and entering, you know, you're now leaving the United States. Google Maps does this for you. Welcome to Alabama. Welcome to Georgia. God is with him even as he crosses that border. He's not bound to a place, but to a people. Be comforted by that, those of you who meet in a church, in a library for worship on Sunday morning. You go into trials, you endure difficulty. And how often do you cry out with the psalmist, Where are you, God? You know, you go into surgery. And there are these double doors your family can't go behind. They're they're wheeling you back for surgery. Your family walks a certain way and then all of a sudden the stretcher stops and the nurse or whoever looks at you and says, this is as far as you can go. And they take the patient through those double doors and the double doors close and you're left outside of them. There's nothing you can do. God doesn't have to stop at those double doors. God doesn't sit in the waiting room waiting to see what's going to happen. He goes with you into that. He says to Jacob, you don't need to be afraid. I'm with you all the way. I'm with you through the whole thing. In fact, even before, at the end of chapter 45, even before God spoke the promise to Jacob, Pharaoh, because of Joseph's character and work ethic, Pharaoh wants to bring Joseph's family down to Egypt and sends carts and horses and chariots and buggies and whatever else, suitcases and an airplane to go get them so that they can bring all their stuff back and then tells them, don't worry about bringing your stuff. We'll give you everything when you get here. They have Pharaoh's favor even before they get to Egypt. Even before they have a face-to-face meeting with him. And it's not until chapter 47 that they have that face-to-face meeting. Goshen is in the boonies. Goshen, those of you that live at the river and are like, I've got this 45 minute or an hour drive in. That's nothing. Goshen is the sticks. It's the part of Egypt no self-respecting Egyptian would ever want to live in. It's east of the Nile. It's nowhere close to major cities. It's not close to the storehouses for all the grain and food that Joseph has been storing up for the last, now maybe nine years or so, ten years. Or for the seven years of of plenty. It's, It's way out there. Wait a minute. It's the sticks. It's the boonies. It's way out there. Where the Israelites can be Israelites and not be Egyptians. Where it's so far from the capital, nobody's going to pay any attention to them. It's so far from the major cities, nobody's even going to care. Nobody's going to know what's going on over there. Do you see it? We're going to give you Goshen. Because it's the best land for shepherds. And because the Egyptians don't care anything for it. You can stay out there. You won't intermarry with Egyptians. 
You won't dilute the water, so to speak, dilute the gene pool. You won't mix those the, the religions of Israel and Egypt. You can be Israelites. You can grow to a million people if you want. Nobody's going to know and nobody's going to care. That's where they're going. They ask for it in chapter 47. Pharaoh grants it to them. You, you, you get these glimpses all along the way. It would be a shame if we had Goshen. Uh, we should send them to Goshen. I've already settled them in Goshen. Y'all should take Goshen. That sounds like a good idea. I'm glad I thought of it. Pharaoh said that, that's not written there, but I'm sure Pharaoh was thinking, I'm glad I had that thought. That's a good idea. Mark down that, that idea. God is with Jacob, giving him the, the best part of the land in order to accomplish his purposes. But also, even when Jacob meets Pharaoh, keep in mind, this is the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. The greater blesses the lesser, not the other way around. How can Jacob be the greater? Because here's Jacob, an audience with Pharaoh. That might make most of us sort of tremble in our knees a little bit. But not the guy who just had an audience with God himself. Not the guy who comes with God's presence with him. He now is the greater because God is with him. The God of creation is with Jacob. And even over the course of the next couple of years, the, the rest of chapter 47 that we didn't read, the Egyptians come to Joseph to buy food and grain and, and such. And then verses 13 to 26, uh, at first they come and buy grain with their money. Then when they run out of money, um, Joseph had all the money. And so the people came and bought uh, food with their livestock. And when Joseph had all the livestock... They came to Joseph and said, we need food, but all we have is us and land. And he said, okay, I'll take the land and in exchange, I'll give you grain. And then you become sharecroppers. You uh, farm the land, you work the land, and um, I'll take 20%. You keep 80% of what you grow. Now, you back up to the history of the U.S., post-Civil War, post-Great Depre Great Depression, 50-50 was nothing. There's evidence then of 40, even 60% going to the landowner. Think of the kindness and generosity of Joseph here. I'm only taking a fifth. I'm only taking 20%. You keep the other 80% for yourself. In fact, they even say to him, you have been gracious to us. They thank him for that tax rate. Joseph is dealing fairly with the people. And then we have chapter 47, verse 27. It's almost a throwaway verse. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Remember the first commission? The first great commission? The first... The Great Commission given to Adam and Eve. Our Dutch Calvinist friends would call that the, the first Great Commission. Forget this evangelism stuff in Matthew 20. It's, it's, it's the, subdue the earth. It's be fruitful and multiply and multiply greatly. And there, that's exactly what the Israelites are doing. They're filling the earth. 
They're multiplying greatly. Even in the midst of famine, they're gaining possessions. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. God is fulfilling His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amidst some of the most trying times in a foreign land, Israel prospers. Why shouldn't Jacob fear going to Egypt? Because there in Egypt, God will make them a great nation. And because God is going with them. There in Egypt, God will accomplish His purposes. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage. First, believers. Trials. Difficulty, the uncertainty of the unknown future that lay out before you, that, that's down the road ahead of you. They're not evidence of God's departure. They're opportunities for us to trust in His presence even more, to lean on His Word, to lean on His promises, to trust in His presence, and to watch and see how He is accomplishing His plans for us. A second application. Think about this for a second. You know, there's actually very little. I can't, I can come up with one thing. Maybe, maybe some of you will come to me afterwards and go, oh yeah, well there's a whole list. There's not much that God does in an instant. He could have created everything in an hour. He could have, in the beginning, you know, He could, and God spoke, and there was. And that word, next word could be everything. That's entirely possible. He, in His wisdom and His purpose, created in six days. Apart from our justification, that moment when you trust in Christ and are declared and instantaneously delivered from death to life, other than that, what does God do in an instant? Our sanctification takes our entire lives and still isn't complete until we die or He comes back. He works through processes. He works over time. There's really not much that God does in a moment. We're impressed. We're amazed at glimpses of our own sanctification. We're amazed that that creation could happen in six days. The truth is, these trials teach us patience and trust. It's not normal. It's not usual. It's not typical for God to work in a moment, in an instant. These trials teach us endurance and patience and trust. This has particular implication for us, right? I mean, church planting. For us here at Grace Covenant in Athens, for the Lintons and others there in Taiwan. You know, Athens is celebrating its 200th anniversary. 200 years of Athens, Alabama this year. You know that, right? This is the 200th year of Athens, Alabama. I've come to realize in the last four or five months, we are the first ever uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church in Athens. Quite possibly Limestone County. We'll have that if, 
If you don't know what Reformed means, if you don't know what Presbyterian means, I eat breakfast every day, I eat lunch every day, and I drink tons of coffee every day. I would be glad to do any of those things with any of you. Okay. We don't have time to explain all that right now. But near as I can tell, we're the first Reformed Presbyterian church in the history of Athens and maybe even Limestone County. In other words, there's 200 years of trajectory behind us. Our goal is not today. Our vision is not tomorrow. Our hope and dreams is for the 400th anniversary of Athens, Alabama to be different from the 200th anniversary. For the 400th year to have a different taste to it because because we want to see the whole gospel proclaimed for the whole person, through the whole city, to the whole world. We actually, our goal, our vision is for an Athens we will never see. That's Jacob's situation. That's where Jacob is. He's following God's lead for an Israel he will never, in this life, see for himself. Oh, that we might have that hope and faith and trust in God's work, in God's timing. Let's pray together.